Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. Hey, we're here today with Donna Jackson Nakazawa. We're going to be looking at some really interesting neuroscience on the effect of hormones and different adverse experiences on teenagers, both boys and girls. And we'll see some really interesting things about specifically how girls respond to stress once they start going through puberty. This is coming from Donna's new book, Girls on the Brink, helping our daughters thrive in an era of increased anxiety, depression, and social media. Donna is the author of four books exploring the intersection of neuroscience, immunology, and emotion, including The Angel and the Assassin, which was named one of the best books of 2020 by Wired Magazine. Her writing has appeared in Wired, Stat, The Boston Globe, The Washington Post, Health Affairs, Aeon, Parenting, AARP Magazine, and Glamour. She's also appeared on The Today Show, NPR, NBC News, and ABC News. We're going to be speaking with Donna today about some recent research on stress we're going to see how the estrogen that floods the system during the teenage years for girls can produce an environment where the whole body is sensitized especially to stress anxiety and stress turned out to be extremely toxic to teenage girls and especially to their brains when we understand the neuroscience of what's going on in our daughter's brains, we can help our daughters to thrive under stress rather than crumple. We'll see exactly how to do that on the show today. Donna, thank you so much for being here. Just finished reading through this book, Girls on the Brink. What's going on here with this? Tell me about the story behind uh, how this evolved and what led you to write about this. Well, I'm a mom of a girl and a boy, and um, I noticed when my daughter was entering the teen years that a lot was happening for girls of her age, and in a way that seemed um, bigger than what was happening for boys. And I was also very aware that around that same time, (laughs) um, NIH had put out a call to include the study of the female body and brain Mm. in research on how stress affects the body and the immune system and the brain. Now I'm a science journalist. I'm a teacher. I lecture. um, And sometimes the professional and the personal kind of converge in a way that makes, you know, you must put your shoulder behind the wheel. So I went around and I talked to 10 of the leading neuroscientists in the world. And I started following three girls for two years from very different backgrounds. And um, 
And the story that they told me simply had to be written. Hmm. One of the, the most interesting kind of points from the book is on the differences in how the experiences maybe affect boys and girls at different periods of life. And you have written that estrogen makes a huge difference. Why is that? Well, estrogen is this superpower hormone. When you think about it across evolutionary time way back, um, it was super important that the female immune system could really pack a potent response to any kind of interloping virus or infection because the female body has to do a lot with less. In other words, the female body is smaller. It organs are smaller, the womb is there. And so females have to be able to respond to any kind of infiltrating toxic stressor or infection with a bigger bang than what testosterone is going to give you. And guess what, you know, the body, um, and, and across evolutionary time, the goal of the brain is to say, hey, you know, are we going to be prepared one day for procreation, right? You know, mm. we're organisms, our, we evolved so that our genes can be passed on. And what happens when estrogen comes in is that it takes that very robust immune response that we all have in the face of stress that everyone has, boys, girls, males, females, and it bumps it up really, really high. This is uh -oh. why with vaccines, girls often have a more robust response. This is why women have more long COVID than men. Mm. It, it's an advantage across evolution for being able to keep another life in the womb safe. But it's a disadvantage mm. when stressors become toxic and ongoing and when kids' bodies and brains are marinating in toxic stress over time, then it begins to flip on genes that are, are without intervention can lead to mental health disorders. So mm -hmm. that has to do with another story about evolution in terms of how our brains and our immune systems evolve together. But I'll let you get to that. Okay, okay. No, that's really interesting. And um, it really made me think a lot about how different things affect different people in different ways. And um, I, I think so often we just kind of uh, assume people are all the same or react to things so similarly. And one thing was interesting, social media, you write about how social media can often have different effects on boys and girls. And uh, that, that some data shows actually that maybe there's kind of um, more deleterious effects happening for girls than for boys, it seems like. Yes, right. So in the book, I have a couple of pages that I call, you know, girls growing up by the numbers. And we know that for girls, the more time they spend on social media, the more likely they are to develop depression or anxiety disorders compared to boys. And we also know that girls spend more time on social media. Girls also are the recipients on social media of a lot more early sexualization, right? So yeah. they're encouraged to sexualize themselves on Instagram and TikTok. 
And that correlates directly to their popularity at school, online, on TikTok. And girls are also more likely to get this real double whammy of likes and dislikes and critiques over their body, their faces. So all of this really matters during these developmental years where the most important thing that's going on in the brain is, am I safe or not safe? That is the number one question the developing brain is asking of, yeah. the, of the environment in which our teens come of age. Am I safe or not safe? And girls, by virtue of being female in our environment, obviously, have a lot more messaging that they're not safe. But this also plays out for them on social media. The standards okay. for girls on social media are often impossible to meet in terms of, you know, what we call scroll and despair, right? Like, you yeah. know, there's just the and the ID, idea that girls have to live up to this very ironic standard in being female. On the one hand, you have to be sexual early, like nine, 10, to be liked, to be popular, to, right. to even be part of the in crowd. But at the same time, when you're too sexual, you're uh, you know, the H word um, for younger listeners, or um, or you also could be criticized for being raped or harassed or mm. later in life sexually harassed in your jobs. Girls are very, very bright and they see all they have to do is look on Twitter or the headlines and see, wow, gymnasts were um, abused by their coach, um, name any powerful man and, uh, super powerful. I'm talking the Matt Lowers and the Bill Cosby's and the Harvey Weinstein's and the Epstein's when they get that much power, it tends to come down on underage girls. So how can you be popular and be part of today's overtly sexualized culture? in which girls are sexualized as women and women are expected to be pubescent like girls and also be safe. It's a conundrum and we as the adults have not done a very good job of ironing this out for our young people. I do want to say boys are suffering too. Let me be clear. Okay. okay. Boys are struggling in droves, but if you look at those three pages of statistics in the book, yeah. grow, Growing Up Female by the Numbers, you'll see that this precipitous rise in girls' mental health disorders over the past two decades yeah. is much higher and continuing to rise much higher in girls. And it's only since 2016 that we even began to look at differences between development when estrogen and testosterone come in. And researchers have begun to see that chronic toxic stress in the environment begins to shift genes in the developing female brain as estrogen comes in, in a global kind of way, opening up this greater likelihood for anxiety and depression. And one other caveat, Guess what? This does not happen at all, except in the face of toxic ongoing stress. Mm. With 
without toxic ongoing stress causing the body to rev up this potent immune response, the female brain is so groovy and and flexible and, you know, can do a lot of things that it can be harder for the testosterone brain to do. So I just want to point that out. Okay. Yeah. I don't want any listeners to come at me and say, what about boys? I'm the mother of of a son. I care so deeply about boys and girls, but when the science is there, when we didn't look at it, when we should look at it, when we're facing this crisis epidemic of depression and anxiety and self-harming girls, and it's growing every year. And the gap is widening between what's happening to boys and girls. We really have to take notice. And I would argue that if we make the world better for girls, we're making it better for all of our children. Now you're also talking about um, rumination in the book, and you talk about the importance of having a trusted adult to turn to, someone who can help them bounce back with whom they feel safe, seen, valued, and known. Absolutely. Okay, and it actually said it goes as far as saying that being able to feel safe with and connected to caregivers and adults is the single most important ingredient in a child's physical and mental health and in the health of the adult she or he will become. Uh, That's pretty strong. Yes. Well, let's think about this. If the brain's job during development and across our lifespan, but with greater consequences during development is to determine if we're safe or not safe, then it would make sense that from very early on, the messages that a child is getting that they're safe in their environment are going to come primarily through a primarily care a primary caregiver, right? Yeah. You know, this is this is we are kind of like, you know, children are born, they come out of the womb in the womb, the placenta serves as a screen for mm-hmm. toxicity. But out of the womb, really a parent's mental and emotional state provides that same service. So uh, we, yeah. we see that when parents are well-regulated and have resolved their own trauma, when they're able to provide that safe and even presence, children learn how to regulate their own nervous system, even when hard things happen, by patterning on the adults around them. And biopsychologists now have come up with a pretty cool term for this called biosynchrony or Mm. parent-child attunement. And what it really means is that, you know, do a thought experiment. Look back to when you were a kid and something went down that was really terrible for you, really hard. And you think about maybe being with your mother or father during that event. And and the question is, what was that emotional climate like for you? Did you feel really safe and seen and heard and known? Or was there a circumstance of having to, what we call parentification, take care of the adult in the room so that they didn't get more upset? 
or was there blame or shame or humiliation or just, you know, stop that. We don't want to hear about that. You're fine. Whatever all that is, it's usually about the parent's stuff and we all have stuff. Let's be clear. So if you want to pull this all the way back to the very first step in safety for children, it's basically figure out your own stuff. Do what you have to do to work through any history of adversity or trauma or dysregulation. And of course, in the book, I have a thousand ways to do this and a thousand things to say and do and not say and do because heck, when the brain's on overdrive, when hard things happen or when we're just perplexed as a parent, like, what do I do now? And your heart is racing and you are afraid you're going to say and do the wrong thing. There are ways to kind of bring it back so that we can offer that state of biosynchrony. And that's the work that we have to do. Sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's not as hard as we think it is when we think about the fact that we're making our life better. Mm. We're protecting our own health and we're creating a relationship for the future with our child that will be lifelong, which is good for them. And really ultimately, I think what every parent wants. Talk to me about ACEs. Uh, you talk about ACEs or adverse childhood experiences in yeah. the book. So, what do, you, what do you say about that? Um, ACEs are types of adversity that happen in two thirds of kids' lives. We've tended to think historically about adversity as being something very overt, like um, you know, a car accident or uh, being physically beaten, but there are many, many types of adversity that researchers have been looking at for 25 years now. And in they've shown a direct correlation between these events happening in childhood or the teen years before age 18 and later developing mental health or, or physical health disorders. That correlation is pretty, pretty tight, extremely well-established at this point. Okay. And what might surprise people is that some of these are things that we might think of as kind of ubiquitous in 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 growing up in some homes, like being sure. made fun of or put down or humiliated mm. or not feeling like your parents or family has your back or, um, you know, feeling emotional, emotionally neglected, you know, no one to turn to when hard things happen, no one to lean on. Or physical neglect, you were sick and people didn't care to take you to the doctor, you know. Um, so also growing up with parent with depression or untreated mental health disorders, let me be clear, untreated depression, anxiety, mood disorders, yeah. and growing up with a parent with, you know, a substance use disorder. What do all these things have in common? They're chronic, they're unpredictable, therefore we call them toxic stress. And back to the beginning, they create a chronic returning sense of unsafety because a kid never knows how is my parent going to react when I need them? Am I going to get what I need or is it going to be scary? And that tells the brain we're not safe and we're not going to be safe for a while, which gins up a lot more of this stress immune response 
that we are trying to move away from. So um, there's some comparisons in the book that uh, I thought were really helpful to kind of understanding all this stuff and how this works. And um, one of them was you say it is like girls who face chronic childhood stressors have a lower set point at which the stress response gets flipped on. I thought that was a good uh, yeah. visual. We have very good evidence and replicated studies which show that um, when estrogen comes in and we suddenly see girls developing mental health disorders at higher rates than boys, that girls who have a history of early adversity, um, these ACEs that we're talking about, are more likely than boys who have the same the same number of categories of adversity or ACEs as if you will, even when all things look equal, girls have a greater likelihood of developing mm. depression, anxiety, and autoimmune disorders, which is interesting because autoimmune disorders are immune mediated. And that tells you that the immune system is going more on overdrive in girls as estrogen comes in. So I guess I should lay out why does the immune system talk to the brain in a way that prompts mental health disorders? What's going on there? Yeah. So that's the two-part answer. The first part is that going way back in time again across evolutionary history, our brains and our immune systems evolved together in very intricate ways so that at the first sign of social emotional stress, the immune system would ramp up to protect you. Well, this is true of males and females. So why would that happen? Well, early in our human history, if you were slighted or dissed or left out or made fun of, or even if you just thought those things were happening, yeah. The immune system would rev up with all kinds of protective factors because back across evolutionary time, back in the day, it was physically dangerous to be dissed or dismissed. You might be set at the edge of the mm. tribe where you wouldn't get good food. And guess what? What did we talk about earlier? We are, as humans also, we are organisms and our bodies evolve to care about carrying on our gene pool, right? Yeah, right. So if you know that you could be at the edge of the tribe where you would be more open to other marauding invaders or tribes, you wouldn't get good food, nor would your children. You might not have access to the shaman or what have you. Um, yeah. And if you continue to be dismissed or dissed or slighted and it grew, you would be ostracized. And that would mean mm. starvation, exposure to predators, the elements. So our immune systems are so smart. Unfortunately, they take a long time to evolve. Um, <laughs> and and that's a problem today when you're, you're having this evolution, this mismatch between deep evolutionary mm. wiring and yeah. modern life, which we can get into, especially for girls. It's an evolutionary mismatch. It's a problem. It means that in today's world, 
kids are responding to the universe around them, which is pretty overwhelming. I mean, we can cite our hundred reasons for that at the moment, um, as if they're going to be set outside our tribe, as if they're in physical danger. And we mm. have good research to show that emotional and social stress activates the same biological pathways as are activated when an individual is in physical danger. The body and brain don't really distinguish. So that is just a little primer on that. The second part of the question is that about 10 years ago, neurobiologists started to look closer at the brain and they noticed that when the immune system ramps up in the body, yeah. it's also causing a bunch of little cells in the brain called glial cells, um, which I wrote a whole book about in 2020 called The Angel and the Assassin. Um, these little glial cells are actually immune cells. They separate out from our white blood cells on the eighth day of gestation in the womb. Mm. They rise up to the brain and they're hanging around there. And their job is to help discern based on signals from your immune system, which remember gets perked up by social and emotional stress in addition to any kind of pathogen or infection. And when there is a lot of incoming onboarding stress, these little cells get a little hyperactive, just like immune cells in the body can lead to inflammation if you whack your thumb or you know, in your joints if you have rheumatoid arthritis. Immune cells in the brain get really active. It doesn't look like inflammation in the body. Guess what they do? They spit out these toxins that begin to harm our synaptic connections. Oh. And they start to actually literally gobble up our brain's synapses. So think about mm. it in the body, right? When you're dealing with inflammation in the body, you want to bring down that immune response because yeah. you're, oh my God, you know, there's swelling or um, joint inflammation. Well, in the brain, inflammation isn't red, hot, painful, and swollen. It's a loss of synaptic connectivity, which we can see on brain scans is what we see in individuals with mental health concerns. So a lot of new science here. I'm sorry. I know I'm talking fast for your listeners, um, but I am a science journalist and, and, yeah, a, a, lot of and a lecturer. <laughs> okay. This is great. No, yeah, this is awesome. Uh, this is really, I think, so interesting. Uh, a lot of the neuroscience that you talked about in the book, and it's kind of scary uh, well, to think about how big some I think it's scary or not to know. Yeah. I think it's scarier not to know because once we know it, it changes how you see everything in terms of the signals that you're getting in the world around you, what you're allowing into your life and who you're being as a parent. Because I think, mm. you know, your listeners are parents. I would argue there is just nothing across our lifetime that we care about more than the well-being of our kids. And yeah. the teen years turn out to be a fulcrum point for that and getting in on that to help create the kind of family that we all want to have and frankly deserve to have, right? We're doing our yeah. best. It's tough. 
it's tough. There's a pandemic. Now there's monkeypox. There's social media with platforms that just don't <laughs> seem to care about how they're affecting our kids. Though, yeah. you know, the world is flooding and burning our poor kids. A majority of kids now cite that they're afraid their school will be in the next school shooting. I don't know. Mm. You're a lot younger than I am, Andy, but, but this is not how it was when I was growing up. Things were tough. Yeah. They were rough. But there wasn't so much coming at the developing brain with so little guardrails. We're here with Donna Jackson Nakazawa talking about how stress affects teenage girls. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I think that's such a, an important thing to think about and perfectly thematic for the whole point of this podcast, which is just talking about stuff and uh, having talks and finding ways to start conversations. And one way to do that, that isn't so overt, like, hey, we're having a family meeting, which might have been the way that I did it <laughs> uh, until I figured out better ways, is to is to wonder together. And, you know, hey, I, I wonder, you know, when this friend of yours is is behaving this way or criticizing you on social media. I wonder what might be going on with her, you know, to not like come in as the detective or the fixer. Why do we have to wait until a kid is 16 and qualifies for, you know, eight very disturbing signs of depression, like right. not getting out of bed or loss of interest in activities? for insurance to allow families to take advantage of family counseling or therapy. It's in our biology to get really hyped and excited when our kids do well. And we want to, we want to let them know that we see it. And what parent isn't excited when they see that their kid, you know, won the poetry contest or whatever, that's just, it's, it's um. a great moment. But when our response is evaluative, it teaches kids that that's what they're going for, right? And and the source of their feeling like they are worthy begins to come from things that are external. And we don't want that. Yeah. I write in the book a lot about how we want this sense of worthiness to be coming from the internal. And so one way to help do that is to switch it out from evaluative statements uh, and also one other thing about evaluative statements, if you're caught up on the good ones, you're also going to be caught up on the bad ones, right? Mm. Like to every positive, there's a negative. So if your parent doesn't say you were really fast on the track today, that is a negative. Just silence is a negative. Yeah, so when we move right. away from that, we can say, hey, I see all your hard work that you put into this, your determination, your resourcefulness. It's really paying off. How do you feel about it? Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.